In this special podcast edition, I've combined the two interviews with Sir David King and Professor Kevin Anderson to create a wrap-up commentary on the COP that I think is insightful and multifaceted. Both interviewees come with a wealth of insight and experience, and whether you agree or disagree with what they say, there is no doubt that both scientists force us to think deeply about the way forward from this crisis point in the human journey. Both speakers also touch on common themes about how we think of the COP process and what a successful or failed COP actually looks like. If the politics is failing, then what are the positive aspects that we should keep or even exponentiate? Hopefully guidance towards those answers emerges from these interactions. Thank you for listening. We are nearing the end of the COP26 specific content. I have one more interview to upload with Dr. Paul Behrens, where we discuss some of the themes in his fascinating new book, Best of Times, Worst of Times. I'm also scheduling another call with Dr. Behrens to discuss his fascinating chapter on population dynamics as they apply to the Earth's carrying capacity. If you enjoy this series, then please consider joining via patreon.com slash gencc. So David, have you seen anything positive from the noise coming out of this COP so far? So the COP process is in two parts. One is the official negotiations and the other is what we call the moment, where everybody is steaming around, forming little discussion groups, and I would say that is progressing extremely well. I don't think I've attended a COP meeting where there is so much enthusiasm and the understanding about the need for real action. But this is all in that moment, which is a critical part of the COP process because there's no other meeting where all this number of people, thousands, tens of thousands of people gather to discuss this one issue, climate change. Okay, and we've just heard that it's going to be extended till Sunday. And this, there's concern that this excludes a lot of the poorer nations who can't necessarily afford to stay on, etc., etc. In, when things like this happen, do you think the actual structure and the process of the COP is fit for purpose in terms of what it's trying to achieve? Uh, there's, there's very, very real difficulties with the United Nations process, 197 nations having to reach real consensus. A couple of nations can actually stop and block progress. And that, that always leads to lowest common denominator determining the way forward. So what, what we know is, whatever the outcome, it is likely that it's not going to be even close to managing the threat to humanity's future that climate change represents. So it's a dynamic process, it will carry on. But I'm really of the view that we need willing nations to get together and promote and carry forward real actions that are needed. Because if we don't do that, and have another five years of discussion, and then another five years, frankly, it'll be too late. Okay. And given that the public in both the US and the UK, which are just two examples, are over 70% in polling supportive of strong climate action, what can we do to meet the level of expectation to fix this whole climate issue? I mean, these, these polls are very, very encouraging. We've never had figures like that before. Um, what, what we need is, of course, deep and rapid emissions reduction. Now, at the moment, we're in a dreadful situation where prime ministers can make speeches around reaching net zero without any commitment or honesty about their, their process. 
Prime Minister of Australia suddenly committing to net zero by 2050, but then also saying, but we won't stop using coal. Bolsonaro in Brazil saying we're going to protect the forests, when he has been responsible for the removal of all the protections put in place by his predecessors. So I, I think there's a, a lot of hypocrisy, but this also means that the, the word of other prime ministers is then brought into question. Now, I, I think we need a follow-up, a detailed follow-up process to see if country A has promised X that they are starting to, live, to deliver on that promise right away. We need an annual survey of what each country is doing. But we also need critically important standards set on how we analyze what each country is doing. And by critically important standards, what I mean is a, a fully quantitative process to look at how we measure carbon dioxide emissions, how we measure methane emissions, how we add the two together, NOx emissions, and how we analyze each country's performance. We need that to be an objective process set out quantitatively. And I'm very, very keen after this COP meeting to see that we progress with that, and certainly the Climate Crisis Advisory Group will be taking that on board. Okay, and there is in a sense, it's been a criticism in the past that these processes have no teeth. And what you're saying is that somehow they need to be given the teeth to make sure these things are not just empty promises. Yes, to give them teeth, but also to expose hypocrisy. Right? We, we need the, the people of a country where a promise has been made by the head of government to know the government is or isn't doing what has been promised. Every country's feet has to be held to the fire, the leadership. Now, it's not just the leadership. We are all responsible. We set standards by which each other tend to live. And so by this I mean, actually, there's no excuse for us to be driving around in SUVs in cities like London and Los Angeles. There's absolutely no reason why we shouldn't be using more public transport. The, 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 the example being set when heads of government go flying off in private executive jets to nearby London or to nearby countries in Europe is not the right example. Right? So we, we are setting examples to others around the world. And by this I mean there's a rapidly emerging new middle class in Asia, Southeast Asia, in Africa, and they are looking at us as setting an example in terms of behavior. We really have to look at this very carefully in terms of how we act before we can expect others to. Okay, and in this decade we now know that climate is here climate change, climate impacts, climate extremes are surrounding us. And the Climate Crisis Advisory Group is an agile process. Can you talk about how you're responding in this decade to what's emerging? Right, so the important thing about the Climate Crisis Advisory Group is we, we have four or five people who are currently IPCC authors. We're not an alternative at all, but we are agile. So we're producing monthly reports, we have monthly public meetings, and we are discussing current issues. We were the first group in the world to look at the extreme weather events around the recent summer in the Northern Hemisphere and relate them back to what was happening in the Arctic Circle region. The loss of ice in that region, meaning the North Pole is now one of the warmest regions in the Northern Hemisphere during those three months. Now we, we related these extreme weather events to what is happening in the North Pole region 
And we were the first to do that. And we, we did get a lot of interest around the world from the, from the media. Now that, that is just the beginning. We, we will produce reports on what has happened to COP26, agreements made, how well or poorly they will match up to the needs of humanity going forward, by which I mean, what is the strategy for seeing that there is a real future for humanity well into the future? If the IPCC AR6 report out in August reports to us that ice on land is melting irreversibly, don't we have to take that on board? Are we actually saying that the next 20 years are the only years that matter for humanity? Or should we address our responsibility to a future for humanity stretching out thousands of years? Right? At the moment, we have no promise at all of humanity being able to operate in anything like its present form for more than 50 years into the future. And I, I think there's a critically important pathway for Climate Crisis Advisory Group to be constructive about what needs to be done, to set out the challenge and then be constructive. We're not just here to scare people and say the world is really in a bad place. We're setting out a full series of targets that need all to be achieved. We've got a comprehensive strategy. Okay, thank you very much. Thank you. Okay, so Kevin, you've read the draft. What's your sort of reading of it? If you have problems sleeping at night, I recommend the draft agreement. There's, there's nothing in there. I mean, it's an, it's an empty, vacuous document that is no doubt very carefully crafted by some wordsmiths, but it's full of urge, and we acknowledge the problems, and we regret that we haven't managed to do something in the past. But there's nothing in there that compels action, that drives towards action. And the small pointers that there might be, very weak pointers that are in there, are completely out of sync with the scale of the challenge that we're committed to. When I spoke to you last week, we, we touched on John Kerry's comments that he's seen so much ambition at this COP and he was predicting that it's going to be you know, rock and roll. Is, is that just been a bit of a joke? Really? Well, in my view, yes. I mean, I, obviously the Americans use English in a different way to us. If ambition in the US means rhetoric over here, then that's what we've seen. We've seen just a huge amount of rhetoric. As I said before, it's, it's deeply choreographed many respects, the, the, the blue zone particularly. Um, so, I mean, we have not seen any, the ambition. There's anything like the challenge. And I think it's worth just reiterating, the challenge is not what we faced when we had the Paris Agreement in 2015. We're six years on. That's a quarter of a trillion tonnes of carbon dioxide that we put in the atmosphere that will be changing the climate for hundreds, if not thousands of years. So the challenge at the end of 2021 in Glasgow is not the same challenge as it was in the end of 2015. It's a much more difficult situation because we have again chosen an additional six years of failure, a six years of listening to the Kerrys of this world, the Obamas of this world, to the, the, you know, the, the leaders who, who demonstrated their, their, their um, you know, almost their contempt for the science and arguably their disregard for a lot of their citizens, certainly their future citizens, with their vacuous speeches at the beginning of, of, this, um, of this COP, with some notable exceptions. I think I noted before that you know, the Barbados Prime Minister really capturing the, the essence of the severity of the challenge, but then you hear all these other typically men in, men in suits getting up and saying, 
you know, nothing meaningful relative to the challenge. And what about the equitable distribution of the carbon budget? Because even we're having this sort of deal between, between US and China and the decarbonisation period and the amount they're going to consume, is that really in line with equitable distribution of that carbon budget? Yeah. I mean, equity is another one of those deep casualties in this COP. It's been an increasing casualty at every COP since it was really first embedded. And it's not just that that's occurring within the, within the negotiations where, it's, I mean, if anything, it's given lip service. So the whole net zero by 2050 you know, demonstrates that complete absence of concern about equity. So it's not as if other parts of the world are going to get longer to do this. I mean, we need to be, we have the language that's used, and then we can discuss net zero. I think that's really problematic. But you know, net zero by 2050, well, globally. But the UK says net zero by 2050 as well for, for the UK. Well, surely we should be way ahead of the poorer parts of the world. And we complain when India says net zero by 2070. Well, okay, if we brought, brought India from net zero from 2070 to net zero in 2050, that means we have to go to net zero by 2030. Now, that would be a, that would be a fairer framing for this. And, but outside of the negotiations, we also look at some of the scientific discussion about this. So we saw the UN GAP report. Now, that, that, there's been some arguments about that saying it, it really doesn't embed equity in any way, shape or form. And the response back was, well, it's a value-neutral process. And if you read the report and you think about it, you stand a little bit back from it, it's not value-neutral. It's just that those values are so deeply embedded. We are, we are highly, a highly colonial northern hemisphere, and we haven't escaped that. But we, we haven't got the reflective capacity to sit back and realise that the assumptions that we are making are not value-neutral. They're deeply embedded in a particular sort of cultural hierarchy. Um, and so we then produce these reports that look like they're scientific, they're full of numbers, but actually what they're full of is deeply biased prejudice against the global south and in favour of the global north. So in terms of that prejudice, we are literally saying, screw you, you're going to face these problems. And not only that, we're not even going to let you into our what we think are safe havens, if you like. Yeah. Is that pretty accurate? Whether it's... We're literally saying... We're, not yeah, literally, yeah. but it's, like it's kind of that our actions speak louder than words. Yeah, our, our actions are definitely saying that. And I think our reluctance to step back and reflect also suggests that. So there's something in us that makes us quite uncomfortable with what we're actually saying. But we know that if we actually started to think about it, it would be, it would be very painful for us. And it would make us have to sort of have a more honest discussion. Um, with the Global South and with ourselves and our colleagues. And we're reluctant to do that. So the best thing to do is to delude ourselves and, and, and turn away from what we know is uncomfortable. Yeah. But ultimately, we're all in the queue, aren't we? I mean, it's not like wealth hasn't really been a reliable uh, buffer because if you take what happened in Canada recently, what happened in Germany, we're starting to see these changes occur in much a wider context in the developed so-called safe nations, which they're not really. I mean... They're not, but then the scale of those impacts in Canada, in Germany, you know, in Cornwall, in the UK, you compare those with the, the flood that occurred in Mozambique and you know, some of the other you know, parts of the world where we start to see these, these huge impacts, there's a, there's a significant difference between those two. And certainly the wealthier parts of the world have the wherewithal to insulate themselves against some of the early signs, early impacts of climate change. So yes, we have all been impacted, but I still think there's an arrogant belief, almost like King Canute in the 
in the northern hemisphere that we have sufficient wherewithal and we are geographically in a, in a slightly more insulated part of the world that we'll be able to deal with a lot of these impacts. And I think it misunderstands again that we're, we're not isolated nations or communities anymore. We're much more interrelated. And so it, it, it misunderstands things like what human migration might mean, what military tension in some other part of the world might mean for us, that our food comes from across lots of different boundaries. And so I think that we, however we, we may be sort of physically insulated from our geography, we will not be physically insulated from these sort of human systems that we've embedded, that we are completely reliant upon now. Um, and I think it is also true that probably we are going to, in the very near term, we'll start to see some worse impacts even in the global north. Yeah. With, with issues of food security because of changes in our, our insect communities that pollinate our crops, we'll be seeing more severe weather events. So we'll see all of those things as well, but I think we'll probably be better at weathering those near term, and, but I think we probably won't be particularly good at adapting to the other cultural changes that will happen um, as we see increased uh, global migration. And in some regards, some of the poor parts of the world already are better at adapting to quite severe events than we are in the wealthier parts of the world. I have colleagues that work um, with, in Bangladesh and with Bangladeshis, and how that they are able to respond to some of the sort of events that they occurred over here would be an utter disaster. It would be you know, virtually collapse of every system that we have. But in, in Bangladesh, they're, they're much more used to that. And so they're actually able to deal with some of the early impacts of climate change in a way that we, we wouldn't be able to. Yeah. So I think there is some, there's some adaptation learning to be done in the north from from the lessons of the South. Yeah, and that is the sort of the multilateral aspect which could work in everyone's favour if it was embraced. So yeah, 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 it certainly could work in everyone's favour, but, but the people that have the ability to embrace that sort of thing are not in the discussions and the negotiations at COP. Okay, and that takes us neatly on to something I've heard a few times today about the is the COP working, is it fit for purpose, and what's your, what's your view now that we're coming towards the end? Yeah. Well, I don't think there's, a, there's not a, a COP, and I'm not sure quite how many of them are, but there are quite a few COPs here in Glasgow at the same time. So you've got the negotiations, which are just, you know, people in suits building houses made out of cards, that, and that's what they do. They do it very eloquently. They all pat each other on the back. You get a few celebrities fly in. You've got all of that utter nonsense that, thankfully, um, more civil society are seeing through, not just the not just the, the civil society action groups that are here, but civil society more widely is seeing through this empty rhetoric. But these people can't escape that. They're locked into that way, that, you know, sort of that prestige and that, um, that, you know, that way of thinking. But then there's the other cop, which I think is the civil society movements. And it's tempting to think of those just as marches, just as, as, as demonstrations and posters. But that's not what they do. You know, most of their time is actually you know, doing things, engaging with local policymakers, engaging with companies, engaging with other people in their communities. So they are they are activists in that they are acting in lots of ways, in myriad sort of ways. So they are they are acting in many ways in their local communities to, to drive progressive change. And we don't we don't see that when it's filmed. But in that I think there's some real hope. And that we're actually hearing dialogue amongst wider civil society, whether not I don't just mean during during COP, you know, sitting on the trains over the last couple of years, you hear much more discussed about climate change. So it's, it's an issue I think much of civil society is engaged with. And if you want to use it in a quite simple way, I, I probably think that our policymakers are somewhere about 1970 to 1980, and civil society is probably somewhere around about 2010. Now, you know, both of them need to be moved forward, but clearly one of them is well ahead of the other. Um, the other sort of COP 
that has gone on here has actually been, and it's another element of civil society, it's been the, the, the People's Summit in town, which has been open to not just you know, the activist community, but, but anyone else who wants to go along to, to see those. And I've, I've attended to quite a few of those, as well as attending side events here in the Blue Zone. And they've been really rewarding. They're actually asking the more challenging questions. So in the Blue Zone, the, the events they've been to that have been worthwhile have been quite sort of what we might say is academics reductionist. They've looked at a particular issue in quite a lot of detail. Yeah. So you go there to discuss how come Greenland is melting much quicker than people thought, and there's a lot of detail about why that's happening. You go out, uh, um, out to the People's Summit, and quite a lot of the discussion there is about why are we in this position? What is it that got, got us here? How do we get out of that? So they, they're peeling back the sort of layers, if you like, to get a sort of a better sort of foundational understanding of the challenges that we face. And not in some way where it's all about chants and songs. They're, you know, they're, they're genuinely trying to think quite hard about philosophy, about value systems. And I found that actually really rewarding. And also the voices there are much more eclectic than they are within the COP. So I mean, some of the events, I'm sat next to someone who's, who's from Namibia and much, much younger than me. Oh, I'm sat next to someone from the Philippines and he's much, much younger than me. And they're bringing different ways of thinking about issues um, and bringing different information for me as an academic. I, oh, I've never thought of it like this before. So that's rewarding and hopeful. So there are sort of multiple ways I think that you can look at the COP. But one final one, yes. if, if that's okay, I'm yeah. rambling on a little bit now, but one final one, and it just came out of some discussion I had with a colleague earlier today. And they were at an event where uh, they were talking, it happened to be they were talking about shipping, but there was a trader there. I won't say any more about this, but this trader's interest in life was money. They weren't interested in climate change, they weren't interested in the subject matter of which they make their money. Their interest in life is making money. And I would find that normally, I'd, I'd probably be you know, fascinated by move away. That's not a sort of way I view the world, I think it's a particularly helpful way of viewing the world. But we sometimes have to remove our sort of political bias on this and our personal bias. They, well, it's what they're saying, interesting. And what this person was saying was, he can't see why people are investing, as an investor, in oil tankers at the moment. He can't see why people are, are still investing in gas carriers. Just, you know, not, we can hardly sell these things now. We're not getting a good return on them. The, the, people like him are starting to think the world is changing very rapidly. And so he's looking for where else he can make the money. Why are people spending their money trying to develop more oil and gas fields? You're not getting the same return there as you're getting on the renewables. So, and he doesn't really care whether it's oil or gas or renewables or ships or anything else. He's just interested in how do I maximize my return? But actually that people like him are actually starting to say, well, I can get a much better return, a much higher certainty of return elsewhere in things that are, from my point of view, much more sort of in line with, with our climate agenda is really hopeful. So hope there coming out from a, an approach and a way of looking at the world that I would find really quite repugnant most of the time. So it's, yeah, it's a different part of the system change. It's a very different part of the system change. And it's one that I think we have to be very cautious about dismissing. And I, I'm looking at myself when I'm saying that. I probably typically dismiss that way of thinking. But you know, we have to, sometimes on, on climate change, we have to park our, our dislike of particular ways of looking at things and say, does it help with these challenges that we face? And I think his voice was actually quite important in that. And in terms of you know, you, what you were saying about the negotiators all wearing suits and being of the same kind of ilk, if you like, uh, one noticeable thing with everyone who's been here, it doesn't matter if you're inside or outside, is the police presence. It is absolutely, I would say it's almost out of control. I mean, there's so many police and they're very heavily armed and they look quite mean, etc. And it's cost around £250 million. Yeah. And yet that's really to keep people who are engaged in climate away from the climate conference if we do you think that there is sort of hope somewhere that we can 
integrate the inside and the outside and maybe reinvest that 250 million. Yes, I mean, it's yeah. a hateful yeah. thing. It is. There's a lot of money to spend on the police. I mean, don't, don't want to pick on the police. I mean, I, yeah. when I've engaged them, I've always found them friendly and helpful. It's usually to ask them the directions to the next event I'm going to, and they've generally been quite supportive. But it is. And you see why some people say this is, you know, it, this is called a cop for, for quite clear reasons because it's full of cops. <laughs> um, and that, you know, I saw that in a t Twitter. And they showed a picture of a demonstration where I could see almost no demonstrators. All I could see were the were the yellow jackets of all the police that were there. Um, it is worrying that we feel we've got to separate civil society. Actually, civil society that is engaged in the issue that the COP is about from the negotiators who are not engaged in the issue of which the COP is about. It seems a strange thing to do, but there must be better ways of bringing those two communities together. Um, and I, it does make me a little, well, concerned and worried that we had this really huge march, but it ended up in a park in Glasgow, a long way from the COP. You think, you know, if that march had ended up here during the negotiations and you'd heard the chance of, I don't know how many people were there, estimates all over the place, 100,000 to 250,000 people. If they'd all been chanting outside the gated community that is the Blue Zone and they were doing that for six or seven hours during the negotiations, would that give a different flavour to the discussions going on within those rarefied atmospheres inside? And certainly at the Warsaw COP a few years ago, which is a strange venue, it's in a, it's in a football stadium, and the, and the actual negotiators were in a tent on the field in the middle. I think what people have forgotten about was, of course, a football stadium is very good for echoing the sound of the singers. And you've got lots of protesters sat in the stands chanting. Now, I spoke to some of the researchers and negotiators involved in the tent in the middle, and they said it, it couldn't help but affect you when you were thinking about some of the issues. So that bringing together of the voices um, of those who genuinely have concern with the negotiators, I think is really key to trying to, 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 to foster a, a, a level of urgency and understanding of these issues way above what we have inside the, the formal COP at the moment. I think that's a good and slightly unusual place to end the conversation. Well, it's good to, good to Thank speak to you. <laughs> I look forward to that Thanks again for listening. If you are interested to help support this series and help expand the discussion around climate topics, then please do consider backing my channel via Patreon. It will help me produce more content and you will also gain access to more expert interviews. It would be great to engage more with audiences too and understand your views on these topics.